This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. <coughs> I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, to Evidence for Faith. This is the radio show where we help you understand the Christian worldview. We are the official radio show of Ratio Christi, the college student apologetics club organization. This is the show that explains the benefits of Christianity for personal happiness and human flourishing. I'm Keith Kendrick. Hi, and I'm Kirk Hastings. And Kirk Hastings is there. Kirk, sorry, my volume was a little down. I'm here. Can you hear me? I can hear you good. Good. So today's talk topic is going to be original sin. We've been talking about the doctrine of original sin. So we're going to take a look at that again today. Just want people to know that then check us out on our website, evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. Uh, we have archived shows there, and if you do podcasts on iTunes, you can find us on iTunes. Also, check out the ratiochristi.org website, and I guess people might be interested in how that's spelled. It's R-A-T-I-O, ratio, and Christi, C-H-R-I-S-T-I, ratiochristi.org. Well, Kirk, we have a quote of the week. So, this is also from C.S. Lewis. He says, if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. So if you, as a listener, are out there wondering whether you're going in the right direction, give Christianity a chance. It's time for you to turn around, repent, and come back into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We've got a couple news items. This one, I was looking for one that I thought was going to come up. I had saved a website that had a real interesting news item. I think we had mentioned it before about a professor, a philosophy professor, very famous atheist who had written a book that Darwinism is a failure. Kirk, do you did you see that? No, I didn't. I, I think okay. I've heard of this guy you're mentioning. It sounds familiar, but I don't know his name. Yeah, Nagel is his name. Some of my websites are still coming up, so we'll take a look at that later. But this was from World Magazine. This is kind of interesting. It's about the scientists who've been finding soft tissue in fossilized dinosaurs. So if you remember one of the shows we talked about, the big blood clot and the vessels that they found in a Tyrannosaurus rex thigh bone that, you know, is supposed to be 65 million years old. And in reality, you know, it would be impossible for red blood cells and all the rest of it to survive that long. So this study was done from, it's published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. And so what they were able to find was the half-life for DNA, 
And let me kill this sound. I don't know if you can hear that, but I will try and stop it. I thought I was hearing a little music in the background there. I wasn't sure if I was uh, imagining it or what. (laughs) Uh, Well, we do have a new way of playing sound, but I didn't think that that would actually play through. It must be the microphone picking it up. Could be. So let me kill that. Anyway, back to this study. What they did is they looked at the rate of decay of DNA in different fossils. So they looked at, they did carbon dating on the DNA, and it was fossils that were between uh, 600 and 8,000 years old fossilized moa birds. And by looking at the degradation, they were able to determine that the half-life of DNA is 521 years. Now, that confirms earlier research that had been done about DNA degradation, and I think people had even worked out the different nucleotides and the breakdown of cystocene and adenine and the rest of the nucleotides, and those were between 200 and 500 years also. So DNA is an incredibly friable, easily broken apart molecule. It needs a living cell in order to keep it from decaying, from just falling apart because the bonds are so easily broken and the molecules themselves are so complex that they have to constantly be repaired. So they will just naturally fall apart even in ideal circumstances. So in fossils, DNA, which is far from ideal circumstances, but DNA will has a half-life of 521 years. So anyone realizes that's incredibly short. So it means that there should be virtually no DNA to be found beyond one and a half million years and absolutely none, no matter how much you start with, by the end of seven million years, you're just not going to find any. And and again, that confirms previous studies. And there was a, another study that I mentioned the one about the cystocene and adenine that they broke down, but there was another study where they looked at DNA and they estimated actually that there should be virtually no DNA by about 10,000 years. So beyond 10,000 years, you're just not going to find any uh, DNA uh, strands. So then World Magazine goes on to talk about a second study related, and that was published in the journal Bone. And this is by Dr. Mary Schweitzer. She is the woman who originally found the blood clots in the Tyrannosaurus rex leg bone. And she's been looking at this with continued interest in this soft tissue in fossils. And so they're looking at Tyrannosaurus rex and duck-billed hadrosaur fossils that are supposed to be more than 60 million years old. And they are finding, she's reporting that they are finding material that is acting chemically like DNA. So acting chemically like DNA is code language for DNA. (laughs) So, uh, which is supposed to be impossible if the theories about the age of the dinosaurs is true. So is that exciting? I read that article, and as I recall it, it's interesting that uh, a couple of scientists come up with some you know, wild guesses about how this could possibly happen. But in the end of the article, they basically say, I don't know how this happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they that's just right, don't understand it. It doesn't fit their theories. So no. something must be wrong with their theories. That's the way I would look at it. Yep. 
So, and apparently somebody else has figured that out, and that is atheist Thomas Nagel. So he has written a book called Mind and Cosmos, and it's a small book, but it goes over his understanding of what intelligent design has shown to atheism and to evolutionists. And there's also been work, I, I think I mentioned Dr. Shapiro's book called Evolution, A View from the 21st Century, where he's talking about all of the genetic engineering that the DNA does on its own. So I'm in the middle of reading that. Just amazing how the living cell is designed to re-engineer the DNA code in order for it to survive. So he talks about that, and there was an interesting quote. Let me see if I can find this quote. Yeah, here is Nagel writing. He says, I realize that such doubts, and he's talking about Darwinian naturalism, will strike many people as outrageous. But that is because almost everyone in our secular culture has been browbeaten into regarding the reductive research program as sacrosanct on the ground that anything else would not be science. So he is going head first after these people who would basically shun him and condemn him and try to get him blacklisted. And uh, I think he knows that this is going to happen, but he is going all out. Even though he remains an atheist, he is challenging the neo-Darwinian project. In fact, the subtitle of his book is, if I can find it here, Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinian Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly False. So now, of course, you would think, well, okay, so maybe he's become a believer or a theist or something, but apparently not. He is searching for a third way. And we've talked about that in the past, Kirk. You know, is there a third way between God did it and God didn't do it? And you know, obviously he's looking for a God-didn't-do-it way, but he realizes that natural selection is just completely inadequate to explain the in, the supposed increase in information that, that is supposed to have happened over time. Well, you have to admire him for his honesty that even though what he's saying could be construed to undermine his atheist beliefs, he's still honest enough to admit that, hey, this doesn't make sense. I don't understand how it fits in, you know, with what I believe, but he he's following the evidence where it's going. And yeah, just like Anthony Flew did, you know, he was the leading, world's leading atheist up until um, Dawkins kind of supplanted him a little bit. And uh, he followed the evidence. He looked at the intelligent design evidence and he became a theist. It's possible for these guys, if you really follow the truth, it's possible to see logically that God does exist. This this must be driving the Darwinists nuts, though, because they can't accuse uh, Mr. Nagel of you know being a religious nut or anything since he's not religious. <laughs> right, exactly. He's still a still an atheist. Yeah. Here here's that other pull quote that they give. I should give credit to this website. It's Evolution News and Views. It's a great source of information on the intelligent design and evolution happenings. So he says, For a long time I found the materialist account of how we and our fellow organ organisms came to exist hard to believe, including the standard version of how the evolutionary process works. 
the more details we learn about the chemical basis of life and the intricacy of the genetic code, the more unbelievable the standard historical account becomes. This is just the opinion of a layman who reads widely in the literature that explains contemporary science to the non-specialist. Perhaps that literature presents the situation with a simplicity and confidence that does not reflect the most sophisticated scientific thought in these areas. But it seems to me that, as it is usually presented, the current orthodoxy about the cosmic order is the product of governing assumptions that are unsupported and that it flies in the face of common sense. So wow. that's a pretty condemning statement. Yeah. Those of you who are sticking with neo-Darwinianism, Thomas Nagel, the great atheist philosopher, tells you you are ignoring common sense. Okay. What's the name of his uh, book again? It's called Mind and Cosmos. Is that and like a relatively... Is why the materialist neo-Darwinian conception of nature is almost certainly false. Is that a relatively new book that he just came out with? Yeah, it just came out. We talked about the fact that the evolutionists were complaining that it was coming out because, you know, obviously just the title. And that, that's when I think it was Jerry Coyne on his website was getting so upset saying, you know, how dare these microbiologists and how dare these philosophers uh, reject evolution? What's the matter? Haven't they been trained well enough on <laughs> evolution? As if microbiologists uh, had not been well enough trained about evolution. You mean, haven't they been brainwashed well enough? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, because it doesn't matter how well you know it. It only matters that you believe it. Right. I was thinking that if, of another word, if one, if one's basic worldview, if one's system of thinking is later found to be false, if it doesn't meet the criteria of evidential research, but it is pushed as being the only way to believe anyways, wouldn't the shorter definition of that be tyranny? Hello, Kevin. I didn't know you were there. <laughs> oh, that's because he introduced himself while you were talking. Oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't Sorry hear about that. you introduce yourself. Okay. So that's why I asked you to reintroduce yourself. We were having a few sound problems in the beginning of the show. Exactly. Modern technology. Yep. So let's see. Let's jump into our uh, topic of the day. Can I give you a quick news item, though? I have a news item here. Great. A little bit of a commercial for my uh, home church, too. Okay, great. I go to Linwood Community Church on Shore Road in Linwood. In South Jersey. Yes. And this past week, we have been hosting a group from Franklin Graham Samaritan Purse Organization. Uh, They came up this way to help the uh, victims of Hurricane Sandy, primarily in the Atlantic City, Ocean City area. And uh, they picked our church as a base of operations. So we're probably going to have them there for a few weeks or even as long as a couple of months. Oh, great, because Nancy signed up with them. My wife, Nancy, signed up with them and was scheduled to go down there uh, when the second nor'easter came and dumped all the snow on us. So she didn't (laughs) go that day. Okay. (laughs) So, But she's going to make another attempt to get down there and help people. A lot of a lot of our people from our church have been driving down and just looking for people that need help and helping them. That's great. But uh, they've been doing a lot of good work in this past week, and I understand uh, I just spoke to uh, Tony McNeil this morning, who's the program director uh, for Samaritan's Purse, and he said that uh, at this point they have 156 work orders 
for wow. work that they need to do out in the community. And uh, he said it's going to take us a while to work through these, but we're going to go through every one of them and give all the help we can. And they're, they've just been a marvelous group of people. They're uh, very friendly, uh, giving people, and it's just amazing uh, how they've – the hours that they've put into helping uh, people in the Ocean City, Atlantic City area, and they expect absolutely nothing in return. They they just do whatever work that needs to be done, and uh, that's it. There's nothing that the uh, the people have to give them back, and uh, it's just been an amazing thing to watch them at work. Well, Kirk, uh, how can the local listeners help out? Is Do you have a phone number or something? I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> yes, if you would like to volunteer to help, uh, they are certainly looking for community volunteers. You can give an hour, you can give two hours, you can give a day, you can give a week, whatever you're willing to do. And all you have to do is call the office at Linwood Community Church, and that number is 927-2950. And Wonderful. The church well, is located. Uh, I'm sorry, Kirk, is, did you have more? Yeah, the church is located at 1838 Shore Road in Linwood. And if you want to just show up and say, I'm willing to help, they'll find something for you to do. Wonderful. That'll be great. And be sure and say hi to Kirk Hastings while you're there. Uh, if I'm there. <laughs> I haven't been around much in the past week or so because I've been sick, but I plan on spending some more time over there. Wonderful. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a minister, a minister. I cannot talk today. <laughs> a ministry of Ratio Christi. That's easy I'm, for you to say. <laughs> exactly. I'm Keith Kendricks, and we are talking about the doctrine of original sin. This uh, radio show, we talk about the benefits <clears throat> of Christianity, and one of the benefits is the truth that it brings to the world and how we can know what's really going on uh, in the real world. And that way, when you make decisions, because you're making the d decisions based on reality, you get better results. So one of the realities that Christianity teaches that is different from other religions and from the secular world is that mankind is fallen. We have a fallen nature. In fact, last week we went over the a good definition of the doctrine of uh, original sin, and this is from Josh McDowell's book, The Unshakable Truth. He says, God created humans in his image to relate to him lovingly, but that relationship was destroyed because of original sin. That's Adam and Eve disobeying God. Sin was passed to the entire human race, and consequently, all are born spiritually dead and utterly helpless to gain favor with God. So, uh, last week we finished up by describing what that does to the world, what that means to the world, and the kind of impact that it has to different areas of life. So, let's review that a little bit, and then we'll jump more into some of the evidence that this doctrine is true. So, the first thing that we can see is that as a result of sin and death, the universe is in a state of increasing entropy. Okay, now that's just a fancy scientific word that means that we're moving from complexity to simplicity, right? Everything is decaying. Everything is falling apart. And scientists tell us that if the universe just goes on, 
that it will eventually die a heat death. It will just disperse and there will be no more heat, no more light, no more stars, no more planets, galaxies. Everything will just be particles randomly floating around in endless void. We're going to burn out, in other words. Yeah, burn out to a whimpering crisp of ash. (laughs) Every force in the universe is heading that way. It affects all chemical events. It affects mechanical events. It even affects information. All information would eventually be lost uh, if it follows this force. So what that tells us then, in the real world, there is no upward evolution. There is no such thing as things getting better, more and more information being added, human beings getting more advanced and evolving and becoming more and more superior over time. There is no such force in the universe like that. Obviously, that puts a a big difference between Christianity and other competing worldviews. So the second thing that we know is that everything is dying, all right? No amount of human ingenuity can permanently reverse the inevitable the inevitable doom of us all, right? We're all going to die. Everything is falling apart, the universe. But that also means our our communities, our institutions, they are all under this force of death and falling apart and entropy. Now, we can use our human intelligence to temporarily improve things, like we can build better societies if we try hard and work together. But if we just leave them to natural forces, they'll fall apart. The same with health, right? If Mm -hmm. we work at it, we improve our sanitary conditions, we improve our diet, we can live longer. But that's only a temporary stay of execution. We eventually die. There is nothing that we can do to permanently reverse the inevitable doom. This sounds like what you were talking about a couple of weeks ago when you were talking about genetic entropy. Yes, it's exactly the same thing, right? So so one of the things that that tells us is that there is no utopian future, right? There's not going to be a utopian future uh, where we can improve medicine to the point where we're going to all live forever, uh, where we can improve government, or institutions to the point where we will be living in some kind of utopian la-la land, like Karl Marx said we would. Such things just don't happen. We can improve things, but it's only when we constantly fight against the natural decay of every system, including human institutions. Oh, man, are you telling me that Star Trek, then, is not uh, an accurate depiction of our future? Yeah, well, you know, we could we could get pretty good. Um, that you know, we could do it if remember it's got to take intelligence. You have to have intelligence working to create things. Then you can get pretty far. But if you just leave things go and everybody does their own thing, then uh, it'll all collapse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned Star Trek. Uh, interesting. My wife is a Star Trek fan, and she told me that. When Gene Roddenberry, who was not a theologian at all that I know of, and when he brought about the idea of the next generation, the rebirth of the original Star Trek, one of his criteria or demands was that the crew 
on the bridge have absolutely no interpersonal conflicts within each other, a type of utopian-type relationship between these people. And that was his mandate. However, when you watch the successive Star Trek shows, Deep Space Nine, etc., etc., you see that interpersonal conflict, arguing, fighting, maybe some people would call it the sin nature, became a part of this utopian-type storylines. Yeah, I think the writers probably were a little bored with things not happening. Or maybe (laughs) they found out the plot lines wouldn't work in reality if everybody was peachy happy with each other. Right, yeah, nothing happens, right? And that, that is actually an argument for why there is evil and suffering in the world, because without it, nothing happens. Well, my understanding as a writer myself has been that one of the main philosophies of a good story is conflict. You can't have a good story without conflict. Right. That's right. All right. The third thing we learn is that sin has consequences. Okay. So the doctrine of original sin tells us that sin has consequences. So what that tells us is that what you do matters. So it matters not just to you, but it matters to those around you. And you can have destructive effects in other people's lives and in society as a whole when you sin. I should have looked it up. There's a a book by a, a Christian neuroscientist who looked at the effects of sin on the brain. And sin affects your brain. So you actually change when you sin. It messes with your thinking. It makes you think irrationally, and we'll actually get into that a little deeper later on. But that the point right now is that what you do matters. It matters whether you sin or not. And so, you know, if you're not a Christian, you need to repent, take Christ's offer of forgiveness, and as Paul says in Acts 26, 20, do good works according to repentance. So you need to live a good life. You need to stop sinning and stop hurting people and hurting yourself. That's good advice. The, uh, the final thing that we can learn from this doctrine of original sin is that nobody escapes it, right? Everybody is affected by it to differing degrees, and we've got that, as we talked about last week, that, that kind of strange balance between goodness. We have goodness in us, but we have also great evil. So... You can never overestimate the evil that's inside a person, right? People can just appear as nice as they can be, just like Kevin Harold here. He's really nice, (laughs) except for the fact that he doesn't shave. He's the (laughs) nicest guy. But you know what? That's what they said about Hitler, right? And I don't know if you've watched... Oh, oh, yeah. No, that he was a nice guy. <laughs> so um, uh, History Channel was showing a while back some of the home movies, Hitler's home movies. And, uh, you know, he was just this amiable guy, very friendly, chit-chatting with guests at his home and, you know, being very hospitable and, you know, just the nicest guy. I think but, I've seen this. Isn't that the one where he had a dog, too, and it had some footage of him playing with his dog and everything? Exactly. And so, you know, it doesn't, it, what this tells us is that it doesn't really matter how nice you are, right? How friendly you are, how, how well you get along with the people around you, you can still be very, very evil inside. Hmm. So let's look then at this idea and develop it more about the impact that sin has 
And what are the different explanations for the cause of sin? You know, I could have pulled out today's newspaper and just read the headlines and it would reveal the enormous amount of sin that's in the world. So, and not just sin, the evils caused by people, but the evils that those sins, uh, how they affect people. And even if we follow original sin, even the physical things that happen, that uh, natural disasters and things that are a result of original sin, um, just have had enormous effect on the world. So everything that is wrong with the world and everything that is wrong with people, all the stealing, all the murdering, all that is the result of sin. Keith, you're saying that... Sally in some way was connected to Adam's disobedience? How how would you explain that to uh, some Hurricane Sandy? Hurricane Was it Sa- Sally or Sandy? Sandy, 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 Sandy. Sandy. I don't know. It was raining so much I forgot what the name was. Right. <laughs> but how would you explain earthquakes and devastating disasters and say it was linked to the disobedience of sin all those years and years and years ago? Well, that's what we did say. We covered that last week. That is the doctrine of original sin. So Adam and Eve pushed God away from the universe. They were given charge. They were put in charge by God, and they rejected fellowship with God. They rejected trusting him in a loving relationship, and so they pushed God out of the universe, not obviously entirely, but they distanced themselves, and God distanced himself from the universe, and because he is the sustainer, the provider of everything good, the world began to fall apart. So the farther, so, the farther uh, away God gets from us, the worse the world gets. Right. So Christianity that? teaches that all of this suffering, all of these sins, is caused by the self-centered humans who reject God. Well, what do, what do others say? Leftists, how about them? What do they say? Leftists, political leftists, they blame capitalism, right? And the unequal distribution of wealth. That's why there's so much corruption. That's why there's so much suffering in the world. That's why there's so much poverty. It's because uh, rich people are stealing all the money from poor people. So, and if you, if you went to, uh, well, and let's not get into politics, um, but... <laughs> Uh, that is a view of Marxism, communism, progressivism, leftism. Capitalism is evil. It is the cause of the crimes and sins. And, you know, you hear poverty causes crime, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I can tell you, I've traveled all over the world in my uh, career as a pilot, and I've been to countries that were definitely not capitalistic. And I've seen intense suffering and poverty and corruption in the supposedly perfect countries. Oh, the socialist? Uh, well, that or the communists. I yeah. guess I'm old enough to have traveled in communist countries. And I find no credible way to say that capitalism alone causes suffering and other uh, more progressive forms of government don't. That's just a fallacy, at least from my experience. Right. And actually, I think you can find uh, several, many, probably in the hundreds of economic studies that have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that poverty does not cause crime. Uh, you can just think back to the 1930s, to the Depression, the Great Depression. Was there as much crime then as there is today? No, there wasn't as much crime as there is today. Well, what about the secular? What do the atheists do? Well, they blame religion. 
right? Religion is the source of all our problems. Religion is why people have wars. Religion is supposed to be the greatest cause of war. Uh, and we'll look at some of the data there today showing that that's not true either. And then you've got kind of a third way, the Hindu, the Buddhist way of just saying that evil is just an illusion, that Eastern mindset, okay, how do we deal with evil? Well, we just essentially wish it away. There is no evil. There is no good. It's only your imagination. Whew. Unless you're a hermit, try to get away with that for any length of time. Now, I want to jump into a little bit in depth now about the the secular left's explanation. So if you combine political leftism with atheism with secular thinking, what's their explanation? Well, let's, so let's go in more depth as to what they think is the cause of evil in people's hearts. Well, first they start, they believe that man is essentially a complex animal, right? They don't believe in that man was created in God's image. They believe he evolved and he is nothing but an animal, just a more complex one, a bit smarter, uh, maybe not even as smart as porpoises, <laughs> but yes, smarter than chimpanzees. They believe that we have these primal needs, these urges that are kind of holdovers from our animal nature, and that those underlie the foundations of our personality. So who we are as people is based on those kind of animal urges and responses. And, you know, somebody, you can think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I don't know if everybody else got that. I know, you know, you can't go to college very long without taking a class in sociology, psychology, or or even politics where they won't teach you about Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs. So he's got, you know, hunger and thirst, you know, those kind of very physical needs at the bottom, and then you work your way up that, you, you know, you have to have security, you got to have love, and, and then you get into the selfish needs. You need self-esteem, you need recognition, and finally, the epitome, the peak of the pyramid is self-actualization. So, there you go, putting the self first, and that is the actual problem. That's not the solution. You know, we talked about it last week. Self is how things went wrong. But in the secular left's idea, self is the goal. Self is the highest form of need. And that's why you hear, you know, things in the press and movies and stories about be yourself, right? Just be yourself. Try to actualize who you are as a real person. So these people are trying to say that we'll have a better world if we're all more selfish? Exactly. Yeah, not not they want you to they will say they want you to make good choices, right? Don't hurt other people, but other than that, yeah, you should self-actualize. You should try to be yourself, right? Don't we hear that endlessly in the plots of movies? Yeah. They think that these that the repression of these urges is the source of emotional suffering. Yes, that's what the, the innovation, <laughs> how we inhibit, religion inhibits your natural uh, drives and needs. And if you were free of that restraint, you would be able to pursue them. Uh, and, however, I don't think my wife would be too fond of that theory if I was out in the bars pursuing my natural lustful tendencies. Right, <laughs> But you see that in the plots of movies now where they've got heroes who are complicated, right? Now you've got the heroes who are partly bad. I mean, uh -huh. they, 
somebody try to be good and, and maybe be bad but fight against it. No, that would be wrong. You have to have the hero who has an evil side or a bad problem and he has to embrace it. He has to learn to get along with himself and accept the fact that he is what full of pride and is an egomaniac or maybe is an alcoholic or something. He has to just accept it. And that's the way the world thinks because of this uh, idea. The anti-hero hero. Exactly. That's what I was just going to say. When I was growing up, they called those anti-heroes. <laughs> But now I've noticed in the in the, um, the the fictionalized movies and books that is now the hero. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, the Ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks, and I'm Kirk Hastings, and we are talking about the Christian doctrine of original sin. So let's move on then to what is the biblical explanation for why. There is sin, and what is the problem with man? Well, as I said before, we believe that we were created in the image of God. So that means that we, just like him, have free will. Remember, the atheists believe you don't have free will. At least most of them do. They believe you're just the product of chemicals and electrical firings in your brain. But Christians believe we have free will. We have creativity. We have emotion, we can identify morals, and we can identify beauty, all because we were created like God, and that is the way God is. So God then, according to the doctrine, he allowed us to obtain the knowledge of good and evil. He allowed Adam and Eve to sin, to disobey him, to eat that fruit, and to obtain the knowledge of good and evil. How could they learn that? By doing evil. The only way they could actually learn about evil was to do evil themselves. So we now have in us this knowledge of good and evil. We call it our conscience. And that conscience recognizes natural law. It recognizes the morals that are in the universe because the universe was created by a moral God. And so we recognize as the furniture in the cosmos, right and wrong. The problem is that we're fallen. We are sinful. We are innately inside us sinful. So when you hear, you know, the Eastern mystics saying, look within yourself, there isn't anything good in yourself. It's not that there's no good. There is good in you, but all the good that's in you is tainted. It is tainted by sin you are innately sinful. So even when you try to be good, you wind up being evil. And our conscience reveals our guilt to us. So we recognize that we stand guilty before the natural law, the law of the universe, the law of right and wrong, and before the God who created us, who wants us to be obedient to him. So what do we have to do? What's the problem then? It, rather than the problem being repressing our natural kind of instincts, what we do is we repress our guilt and we say, no, 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 I'm not guilty. I, I have to get rid of my guilt feelings and the denial of our sin, the denial of our guilt, that is what results in emotional suffering. That is why women who have been bought into the hookup generation suffer so much from depression and have to go 
to counselors and then the counselors try to help them, try to get them over and try to get them to ignore their guilt and to tell them that that's false guilt and that they shouldn't, that they should go after their hierarchy of needs, that they should self-actualize, that they should basically be selfish. And very sadly, a personal story that I have is a, a, a friend of mine whose wife was going to a counselor, a secular counselor, for over a year, and she finally left family. Why? To fulfill herself. Hmm. Just out of pure selfishness, she left them so that she could have time uh, for herself and didn't have to invest her time, her energy, in anyone else. Hmm all from what this uh, counselor told her. So what do we do with this emotional suffering? We respond with irrational beliefs and actions. And uh, that leads to further sin and further grief. And we become very irrational like atheists. We become atheists. We justify our sins. Uh, we begin, you know, things like trying to kill the pain with alcohol and drugs and some even commit suicide. So this irrationality, these sinful behaviors all come from this suffering that we're going through. So the Christian has a great charge in this world to try to ease the suffering of people who are suppressing their guilt. And we have to recognize that the atheist, they are not our enemy. They are the kidnapped victims of our enemy. So they are the people who are suffering. They are the ones who are acting irrational, irrationally because deep down in their hearts, they know that they stand guilty before uh, a just God. But Keith, wouldn't you say that a common perception of religious people these days by non-religious people is that all we do is hammer on guilt, guilt, guilt? And the kind of the message gets lost that there's guilt, yes, but there's also a solution. And so we certainly have to recognize that there is guilt. But we, as Christians, we say guilt is not the end of the discussion. It is the beginning of the discussion. That when one recognizes and looks at one's guilt, then one can go to find the solution for the guilt, not the cover-up. Right. But the dealing with the guilt. Absolutely. It has to be dealt with. Well, I was going to pull up my Bible and go through some verses, but I think what we'll have to do in the interest of time is just reference people. So, I guess the main point is that the biblical view is that we have a heart problem. Mm. So, if you'd like to go to your Bibles, uh, you can get look up Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, where Jesus talks about the fact that sin is a heart problem. It's not economic, right? It's not sociological. It's not intellectual. It's a spiritual problem, right? Our hearts are naturally in rebellion against God. We are born that way. It is because of original sin. And the sin that we commit and the sins that people commit all around us result in all the negative consequences that we see. So we have to be aware of that. We have to avoid sin as much as we can and try instead live in relationship with him. And God says that if you do that, if you live in relationship with him, he will bring blessing. And that flows naturally 
from just being obedient and because when you're obedient, you're fitting into the way things actually are in the universe, the way God created them. So things just go right. It's like you, Kevin, as a pilot, when you hit those buttons right and you flip those switches and fly the plane the way it was intended to fly, things just go smoothly. Or don't they? Well, unless there's big, white, fluffy clouds and you have to go through them. <laughs> But you're, you are correct. The airplane was designed to be operated in a certain way. And if I try to make that plane work in the way that it was not originally designed to operate, it will not function properly. And you can see the analogy there is that we were designed by God to function in relationship with him, right. relationship with others, relationship even with ourself in a way, right. in a certain way. And then when we try to do it the wrong way, the incorrect way, there is consequences. Right. Kind of like I land the plane and don't put the landing gear down. It <laughs> slides real easy, but it takes a whole lot of power to try and taxi. So that's not the way it was designed to be. There you go. And then the plane needs a new paint job after that. <laughs> exactly. So the other thing I was going to do was uh, um, bring up some of the descriptions in the Bible about how sin does destroy things, how it works to corrupt human relationships. You can think about Cain and Abel, right? I mean, the opening chapters of the Bible, uh, how resentment and jealousy, those those inner sins, right? Just sins of thought, but yet they led to murder. So that's found, if you want to look it up, Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, when God is talking to Cain and saying, why do these feelings arise in your heart? Be careful of sin. Sin wants to master you, but you must fight it, right? And that has been the fight that every person since Adam and Eve has been through, the fight over sin. Sin will master you. It wants to master you. And what the New Testament tells us is that you need the Holy Spirit to overcome sin, only source of holiness is the Holy Spirit. It, it doesn't come by obeying laws. That's what the Old Testament showed us, that even with perfect laws, you will not be perfect. So uh, then, you know, Cain rejected God's warning, and uh, you can read all about that in, in Genesis chapter 4. But just a little further on, you've got the story in Genesis chapter 35, where the prince of Shechem rapes Dinah, her brothers seek revenge and wind up killing a bunch of people. So the internal lust of one person led to rape and revenge killing. And then further on, you can look at Exodus chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, where it talks about the how the desire for power led to slavery and murder when the Pharaoh decided to take the Israelite children into bondage. So from the earliest history of the world, we see this problem, but you don't have to go very far in today's history. Just look back at the 20th century, and I often talk about it on the radio show, how secular leftism has left the bloodiest trail. The body count of secular leftism is more than three times all of uh, the combined wars that you can uh, added for the history of the world. So let's just go through a few. The Soviets 
right, from the 1917s to 1987, killed 61 million people, their own people and in wars that they started. 1923 through 1987, China killed 80 million people. 1933 to 1945, Germany, again, secular leftists, killed 21 million people. Then you've got Vietnam, 1.7 million. North Korea, 1.7 million. Cambodia, 2 million. Afghanistan in the 80s when the Soviets invaded, 2 million. Sin is well and alive in the world today, and having the wrong solutions to sin, like secular leftism, leads to despair and bloodshed. And, and another example of this is today, if anybody has seen that picture on the internet of Korea at night, where it's got North and South Korea, and North Korea, secular leftist government, has one spot in their capital city where there is light and the entire rest of the country is darkness. Yet look at South Korea. Not long ago, they were essentially economically equal, but because they had liberty, because they had Christianity spread there, they are now lit up. They look like the eastern seaboard of the United States. There is so much wealth and the poor have been lifted up and brought out of poverty and yet just to the north of them, it's nothing but a giant concentration camp. Hmm. So there are lots of benefits to living in relationship with God. We'll just close with this. If you want to look it up, it's Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13, where God says, I give you these laws. If you will only obey them, they will be beneficial to you. And sin has consequences. That's Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 20. If you don't obey, if you don't listen to God, uh, you will have problems. You will have depression, disease, bloodshed. So, as you know, wages of sin is death. Another verse to look up would be Romans 3, 9 through 12. And everyone, I think everyone really can think of personal stories that they've had in their life of the consequences of sin in their lives, right? Either sin, I know I can think back very easily of sins that I've been involved in and I've committed that led to great problems, great anguish, great suffering. And to be honest with it, you know, everybody has to be honest with themselves and see and not try to suppress that guilt, not try to suppress that guilt, but to repent because we've still got the freedom. We can choose God's way. We can choose to repent and turn back to God. If you do that, and trust in Jesus Christ, you will become a Christian, and God will give you his Holy Spirit to help you to live a holy life. Can you vouch for that, guys? Oh, yeah. I, w- I would say that your life is not going to be perfect, per se, but you will be operating you, the airplane, in the way it was designed, and your life will tend to be more in harmony with the way that God designed you to operate in your relationships, especially in the family and your community. So you will be greatly lessening the consequences of sin by not operating contrary to the way that God designed you to be. Absolutely. Well said. Well, you've been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Rashi Christi. Please send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. 
And join us again next week for more reasons to believe. But always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah,